0: If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up.
1: You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really
2: want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up.
0: To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature.
1: This podcast is powered by Acast.
0: How you doing there? It's time for the podcast. You know the one that makes economics that little bit more understandable, comprehensible, and hopefully a little bit more relevant to all of your lives and your life and my life. And John's life has changed immeasurably in the last day or two because we're out. We're
1: out. Or As Marla would say, we're out and bad. We're out and bad. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, no, it's great. Do so you know what I have to say before? What do we get you have going, to say? What do you have to say, Johnny Boy? Last April, we paid tribute to the one and only Jim Steinman, the composer and writer of yep. all things bad out of hellish and meatloafish. Now, just last week. Meatloaf himself ups and dies. Has joined him,
0: as Meatloaf would say, like a sinner before the gates of heaven.
1: There you go. I come there you go. crawling on back to you <laughs> and such other great numbers. There was a brilliant tweet. I can't remember who was by, that basically said, isn't it mad that this pandemic started and ended with a battle of hell?
0: Oh, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> I thought it was cool. Well, listen, I, you know, the funny thing is by Jim Steinman. I was listening on the other day in the car, and there are some really pathetic... Too bad I don't know. No. Oh. To Radio Nova, which plays some ridiculous guilty pleasures yes. every now and then. Oh, yes. One yeah. of which is a full-on Bonnie Tyler, Total Eclipse of the Heart. <laughs> okay. And as I was listening to Total Eclipse of the Heart, right, melting it out at the traffic lights in Dunleary in the comfort of my own jam jar
1: looking in the mirror
0: looking in the mirror big hair <laughs> yeah. the quiff the big 80s fro I was thinking to myself that sounds disturbingly like Meatloaf because yeah. it was on the day that Meatloaf died and then the DJ told me that who wrote the Clips of the Heart Jim Steinman. It's the whole thing. It's operatic. Yeah. It's camp. It's Broadway. It's big. It's yeah. Broadway. It's fantastic. That's
1: it. That was his whole thing. And and it is camp. And everything that good entertainment should be, that's it's what camp. it is.
0: camp and theatre yeah. and stage. Yeah. And, and over the top. Yeah, it's Freddie. Yeah. It's Freddie. Exactly. It's Freddie Mercury, the whole yeah. thing. Yeah, anyway, yeah. we will maybe do a total eclipse of the heart uh, number. The next time we do a podcast live, we should come out in our finest. Yeah. Bonnie yeah Tyler. Yeah,
1: exactly. Bonnie <laughs> Tyler look. What's rocking your world, John? What's, what's what's annoying you? Well, I'm just looking at you know, I'd take cursory looks at the markets and all the rest. Yes, but they,
0: they... channeling your inner sort of yeah, yeah,
1: trying trying to figure it all out.
0: We, we, we call don't... him George in his downtime here. George George Soros. He's uh, <laughs> he's astute reflexology as Soros talks but about. The markets are
1: all over the place. They are like they really are. And what what has it been? 20, 25 days of trading since Christmas and bond yields are going up. Yeah. Tech stocks are are crashing all over the place. But well, I
0: tell you well, what. What's behind that? And Bitcoin, since we trashed Bitcoin the other day, we didn't trash it. We just said, look, I don't know what it is, but it's not money. Yeah. And be careful about it because it always seemed to me when you get so many people, uh, and, and I think it's a really... Worrying things. So, for example, when you when you say about let's say let's take Bitcoin or any stock that is the stock de jour, this is the asset de jour that people mm. are interested in. And let's say you say, for example, on a podcast like this, look, I'm not sure sure about this, there's a guaranteed pylon on Twitter, right? Oh, okay. Big now, time, yeah. That to me is really indicative of something very fragile. The more people who can't contemplate somebody being critical of their position, saying, you know what, worry about this. The more people commit to that level of commitment, the more suckers are out there who've just, as the Americans would say, drank the Kool-Aid, right? And I think it's worrying. When we did that podcast, Bitcoin was at 37,500 euros per Bitcoin. It's now at 31,176.
1: And still dropping.
0: And still dropping. I'm not sure if it's going to keep dropping, but my point is this is the nature of speculative assets, right? This is the nature. So what happens when, and you asked about this, the interest rates and whatever. I'd advise anybody, if you're interested in this, to go back and listen to our podcast with Paul McCulley. Now, Paul McCulley, for his troubles, was the chief investment strategist of PIMCO, which is the biggest bond fund in the world. So Paul was paid for the guts of a decade a lot. to make a lot. Yeah. A lot more than you and I'll ever be paid, but was paid to make these big bets about the markets. And he'd said, I think the podcast is number 199.
1: Yeah. Well, so, just before Christmas, just 21st, 21st of uh, December.
0: So have a listen to that because Paul is basically saying, look, interest rates are rising. It doesn't really matter if you think that inflation is transitory or if you think it's permanent. It's what the Fed thinks that actually matters. And he was saying, you know, just be very, very careful about anything. I'm looking at Netflix. Netflix lost last week 45 billion in terms of its valuations in one day. Mm. And the reason it did is that rather than say, we're going to have 5 million new subscribers, that was the forecast. They came out with like four, four and four and a half million. But the market is so priced for blue skies at these levels that even if a company like Netflix is still growing, it's not growing fast enough. Not going fast enough for what? To validate the valuations that have got ahead of themselves, so it's all about expectations, deliveries, etc.
1: So, do you know what that actually? It's it's a little bit like in the music industry, and the way it used to be, that if you have an album, you sell a million copies, and you come out with the next album, and you sell nine hundred thousand copies, it's a failure. It's considered a failure. I know it's ridiculous. A disaster.
0: Well, it's, it's still 900,000 It's all companies. to do with hype, expectation, right? So if you think there's two types of investing, right? There is investing, which is all to do with dividends and yield and income. So I'll buy this kind of boring company, mm. like AstraZeneca, or one of these, these companies, some pharma company, right? That you know generates income all the time, okay? Yeah. Right? Or I'm going to gamble everything on the jackpot and that's two types of investors one investor is slow steady eddy i'm not that interested in speculation the other investor is i want to hit the jackpot all the time and increasingly what happens as it's a bit like playing the lotto i always think there's two types there's a lotto finance mentality there's a reason Mm -hmm. that really rich people don't play the lotto and really poor people do because rich people have figured out the risk profile So, basically, the chances of you winning the lotto are a million to one. That's not a good bet on anyone's. Yeah, yeah, Think about it, right? Yeah. So, I've always thought there's... But it could be you. That's the point. (laughs) Exactly. It could be you, as the ad says. But the difference is you never hear rich people talking about playing the lotto, ever. If you go to a poor pub in any part of Dublin, any part of the world, people will talk about playing the lotto. This is always interesting me. Why do poor people play the lotto? They play the lotto because nobody's understanding probability, right? The probability of you winning the lotto makes it almost this one in a million thing. Yeah. So it's a stupid thing to do. It's a way of wasting money, right? Wealthier people- I play the lottery. No, but listen, wealthier people have figured out probabilities, right? So they narrow down their risk, or they get somebody who understands to narrow down their risk and narrow down the probability. So the whole thing about investing, the key thing, is not to lose money, not to make money. Yeah. Don't lose it. And then you start making money. Yeah. And what we're seeing now in the markets, John, is all those kind of lotto type investments, right? That they're going to promise you the sun, moon, and the stars backed by nothing, they're all being eaten by what I would call the confidence termites. Right?
1: <laughs> so the <Confidence> whole termites.
0: <laughs> think about a termite, right? The whole thing about the only thing I learned in financial markets working over the years in this game was it's all about confidence. Nebulous, hype, hot air, the whole thing, right? Yeah. And the cheaper money is, the greater the confidence edifice. Yeah, yeah. But there are these things called, in my head, confidence termites. You know the termites go tick, 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 they eat a little bit, they eating a tiny bit all yeah, the time. Yeah, yeah,
1: drill a hole in the Drilling little,
0: little small holes in the wood until a time where the confidence termites have... Drilled away at confidence so much that the whole thing implodes. Yeah. And that's the way financial markets work. And I think we're in something like that sort of cycle now. And I mean, and you can see it in these stocks, but it is a result of the question you asked. I'm going to ask it again, the, this idea of bond yields and stock prices. So, you know, what was that was perplexing you
1: again? Well, it was It was the fact that all of a sudden bond yields are rising. Yeah. And tech stocks are dropping. Are falling,
0: yeah. So
1: what's going on there?
0: Right, that's a very good question and a very good way to start the podcast. So first of all, we talk about bond yields and what Mm. they are, what they mean, why they are rising, why bond prices are falling. So the United States has had this big battle at the heart of policy as to whether or not the inflation that they're seeing, which has now hit 7%. It's so the highest in 40 years, mm, okay? Yeah. Is transitory or is permanent, right? Uh, the interesting thing is uh, the transitory camp basically says, and interesting, the ECB are in this camp, right? Right. Transitory camp says this is all a function of the recalibration of the economy after COVID. Remember we described it about the toothpaste and the coagulation <laughs> yeah, at yeah, the yeah, top yeah. of the Right. So the idea is that if you shut the economy down, you shut all supply chains down, that means factories close. That means shipping stops. That means lots and lots of things stop. People are idle. They're doing other things, right? And then suddenly you open the economy again. And demand is fascinating in a way because demand has shifted from services to real goods. I'll explain that, right? Mm. So most of the things, you know, if you think of consumer demand, lots of it is booze and food and going out, right? It's yeah. a huge amount of it. Now, because that remains suppressed, what people have done is they've started to order fridges and cars. Remember we talked about the DIY, yes. couches, yeah, yeah. right? They're looking around, they're getting new kitchens. Like, well, these are all real things that need to be made and shipped, right? From a various, very, yeah. various locations. So so rather than spending on restaurants and holidays and we're not traveling, we're spending on real things. That puts excess capacity on industrial supply chains so the transitory idea is, hold on a second, it's just all this excess capacity, there's huge demand. The demand is a bit, it's a bit like, you don't brush your teeth for a week, <laughs> and then somebody says to me, God, you stink, right? <laughs> so you go up and you brush, and, and, and what happens is the toothpaste is coagulated and calcified at the top of yeah. the tube. So when you push the tube, which is demand, suddenly, it oh, only kind of squirts out, yeah. okay? Yeah. It's not a free flow. Right, And so that's the way in which supply chains work, right? That they're all clogged up, and over the next eighteen months, they'll become less clogged up, and ultimately the inflation that we're seeing in certain areas will come down. That's the transitory camp right. The permanent camp is saying, no, 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 something profound has changed within society. We are having shortages in the labor market, people the great resignation people the great are not going na- back resignation yeah, yeah, we have everyone's
1: talking about that now.
0: Well, of course, we kicked it off there a few months ago. Indeed, indeed. Problems in the oil market and gas, whatever. These are all real, number one. But number two, the more important thing is the expectation that inflation is now in the system has become embedded. So the people in the permanent camp say the only way in which we can wrangle out this inflation is by increasing interest rates, suppressing demand and attacking inflation this way. The transitory people say, well, hold on a second. If you increase interest rates, that's going to not change your supply chain at all. Yeah, right? Yeah, the yeah, supply, exactly. is spri- right? So it's this battle between the two. All the while, American inflation is at 7%, American interest rates are at zero. So right. it means the real rate of interest in America is a minus 7%. Right. Now this leads to what they call financial repression. This leads to misallocation of resources. This leads to people taking risks that are actually unquantifiable because the cost of capital is zero. So it's not costing you anything to take a risk. So yeah. this is this was as it was yeah. in December. Yeah, yeah, Now the Fed has said, look, hold on a second. We're kind of agnostic as to which camp it is, but we have an inflation problem. So what we're going to do is we're going to raise interest rates four times in the next year, right? Now the market had priced in three times in the next year. Now, it's four times. So what is happening is the financial markets are saying, okay, well, if there's going to be four interest rate increases, right, that the impact of this is going to be on bond yields, so long-term interest rates. So an important thing to appreciate is that the long-term interest rate is only the short-term interest rate plus a risk premium.
1: Right, okay. okay.
0: So the short, once the short-term interest rates rises and it's pledged to rise four times, long-term interest rates have to rise, right? Now, the reason that this causes bond prices to fall is bonds are actually priced the inverse of the interest rate. So I'll explain that to you, right? So let's say, for example, you issue a bond for 100 euros. I borrow 100 euros from you and the interest rate is 2%. So what basically happens is you give me the 2% and the bond is then 98 cent. Let's say it's 100 euros, right? The rate of interest is 2%. So it's a fixed coupon. So every year I've got to pay you Two, yeah. right? But what happens if, for example, the rate of interest rate goes up to three? In order for me to pay you back the 100, the price of the bond has to fall to 97. So 97 and three is 100. So yeah. it always has to reach 100. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So this is, explains why when the rate of interest goes up, the price of the bond goes down by definition. So if the rate of interest goes to 4%, that bond has to go to 96 euros
1: okay right okay so take the 100 euros i understand the principle so that's so
0: right so that's what you're seeing right so what you're seeing is bond prices fall as the expectation of interest rates rise and that means therefore if you want to finance something in the very long term it's going to cost you more right yeah now why does that impact on tech stocks because most tech stocks, with the exception of the really big ones, are built in the premise of very, very low interest rates. So if you think of all the speculative tech stocks, the ones that don't make any money, right? They're all based on the notion of the cost of capital being very, very low. If the cost of capital rises, the cost of actually investing in them rises. So right. there's an overall right. shakedown right. Yeah. in, right? And that's the first thing. The second thing is, because all these investments are what I call cross-collateralized, so you have lots and lots of big investment houses, let's say, who own Amazon, but they Mm. also own these spivvy tech stocks that have made no money. If they start losing money, these big funds have to sell their Amazon to make good the losses in other areas, right? right? This is the idea of, selling good stocks to pay for bad stocks. So what you have is you've got all this flux going on in financial markets at the moment. And then what you're seeing is, the upshot is, as bond rates rise, yields, and bond prices fall, tech stocks fall as well. The other thing, of course, is that if bond rates rise, the ultimate Fed position is the economy will be moving slower, not quicker, in a year or two's time. And of course, because what they're trying to do, so the Fed's trying to squeeze down on demand, to squeeze out inflation. So the ultimate long-term objective of the Fed is to get the US economy from a 4% rate of growth to a 1% rate of growth, or a 2% rate of growth.
1: Given that the the Fed is upping the interest rates. Yeah. They're they're
0: moving towards this,
1: right? Yes. So the transitory team are saying that, well, like this is only temporary. So is the... Could the Fed be moving a little bit too early? Oh,
0: yeah. I mean, this is so, so basically, and the, the market have these two views. One is if you believe, actually like myself, that it's transitory, then I think you're moving too early, right? If you believe it's permanent, you're moving too late, okay? So ah, this, this okay. Is the thing, and this is where the the wisdom, to a degree, of the economists at the Fed comes into question, right? And of course, then there's big beasts in, you know, Economics in the United States is very, very stratified and unbelievably genuflecting to a hierarchy of five or six big mm. brainy folk. One of whom is Larry Summers, who believes that we are in a situation where inflation is permanent and only through stagflation would the United States come out. And stagflation is this awful combination of inflation and lower growth. Yes, And that's what we went through in the 70s. Other economists were saying, look, the world doesn't look the like that. That's, the big, that's
1: yeah. the big fear for That's the big fear. it's the big
0: fear for a lot of people. Other economists were saying, you know, that's not going to happen because the labor market's different and the product market's different, et cetera. But at the moment, the financial markets have to price in what they think is going to happen. And what they think is going to happen is interest rates are going to rise quicker And that's going to have a profound effect on all sorts of other assets, particularly those assets that don't generate huge profits that are only, what I would say, priced for, in the future, we're going to make a fortune, right? Right. Which is And a lot of the tech stocks are still in that particular account. So that's what's actually going on. And it's very much the inflection point. And also, I think if you stand back, you've got to take the view that if inflation is coming through, and if wages are going to rise, therefore profits will fall. So basically in all output, this is going back to Marx, what he was right about, right? Mm. is about like this. You know, If you sell a pen, right? Yeah. The return either goes to the person who owns the pen or the workers who made the pen. Yes. Right? So if the wages of the workers who made the pen are rising, the profit, the fellow who owns the pen are falling. So if you believe that inflation is going to come through in some material way, well, then you also therefore believe the profits are going to fall in a material way. Yes, and therefore the way in which stocks are priced has to recalibrate downwards to take into the fact that profit margins are going to be lower, not higher, in the future.
1: Yes, so okay. that's
0: that's the whole thing's going on. It's it's kind of it's what I used to do years ago in in banking. This yes. malarkey, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. and and it is, and it shows you that the, the fascinating thing is, it does show you that at the end of the day, investment is all about macroeconomics. It's all about getting your macro call right, getting your macro ingredients right. And when I was younger, one of my bosses said to me, Paul McCully, said to me, and I was really struggling with trying to make all this sense. And you're also young, you're like your late 20s, and you're trying to come up with a view of the world. And he said, and then there's too many moving parts, it's too complicated. And he could see that I was really freaked out. And he said, look, you've only got to get three things right in this game. You've got to get the price of oil right. Mm -hmm. You've got to get the US long bond right, where you think that's going and you've got to get the US dollar exchange rate right. So if you get those three things right, you can form the basis of a worldview because they're all related to
1: inflation. Getting them right is the tricky thing. Right he <laughs> says,
0: but you don't even have to get them right. You just have to understand why you've arrived at this conclusion. Right. And then you can hang all your global forecasts off. Yeah. And he was right. Because of
1: course, you, oil is going up now as well.
0: Oil is, oil is going up and it's going up for a variety of reasons, but non-demand related. So so that's all the stuff going on in the States, right? But I think the bigger issue on the horizon and the reason I believe that inflation will probably not come through is that the single biggest deflationary force over the last 30 years in the world has been the emergence of China. Mm. So in the beginning, China was a deflationary force because the costs in China were so, so tiny in comparison to the rest of the world. So this is what they call offshoring. Loads and loads of business, particularly American businesses, went to China. Profoundly decreased the cost of production. And this was a deflationary source. Now, in the last couple of years, as China has been booming, it has become an inflationary source. So the Chinese are sucking in imports now, Mm. pushing up global demand, right? The big change is that the rate of growth in China, I remember I was talking about the comparison between China and Japan. So so Japan, 1945 to 1990, China, 1990 to 2000, mirror image. I think what's going to happen is that China is never going to grow by 8% again. Never, right? Yeah. And I think the Chinese growth rate will be about 1% or 2% maximum for the next few years. And I think that will be a hugely deflationary force in the world because China will be no longer sucking in all the production of the world. Yeah. It'll be actually a much more deflationary force. And I'm not sure people have really figured that one out. Or not so much figured like how it out.
1: We, how will we see that? How will that manifest itself?
0: Well, the price of all raw materials will fall. Right. So, one of the one of the greatest drivers of inflation is what they call cost push inflation, which is basically the price of oil, the price of yeah. wood, the price of all the materials. All yeah, the materials. Yeah. And it, what China has been doing, because it's been producing at such a breakneck speed, it has been, in a way, not artificially, but it's been driving up the cost of everything. And where I saw this years ago, I don't know if I told you, maybe years ago, I did a, you probably didn't see it, it was, a, it was on Aussie TV. I did a documentary for Australian television. Mm. No, I and, remember you doing yeah, that. And, I didn't see it. Yeah, it was on Aussie TV, but it was amazing. I spent a lot of time in a place called the Pilbara. And the Pilbara is Western Australia. It's the big mine, the quarry
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. of Australia,
0: right? And they yeah. take out everything, ore and zinc and all sorts of things, right? And it's phenomenal. These huge trucks, these massive big sort of trucks. Like You're like, you're like a tiny little tiny little creature. But basically everything was being gouged out of the Australian continent. And put on ships in a place called Port Talbot and exported to China. So right. Australia was based in China's quarry. Yeah. And that was a microcosm of what was happening all over the world. So China was importing oil because, again, China has got no oil.
1: Yes. It's yeah, only which energy is, really, is coal. Yeah. It's
0: only energy is coal, right? And again, because of the green agenda, they want to reduce their dependence on coal. So every single commodity, for example, years ago, I was in Argentina and I sat down with a bunch of Argentinian farmers in a place called Mendoza and they were all producing soya yes for China and right. their idea was they changed their entire farming in Argentina in this part of Argentina yeah into soya. And it wasn't just
1: Argentina it was, Brazil, it was also Brazil the whole everything lot. right yeah
0: and again so all those prices were being kept up by Chinese demand because China was growing at six seven eight percent if China's now growing up one percent that's a completely different game so I think that's the one to watch, I and mean, we come back to it. We yeah. will definitely come back to it. But lots, there's lots, lots of moving parts, John, as they say, lots Indeed. of moving parts, <laughs> lots of moving parts.
1: Last Friday, my phone went absolutely balubas with a flurry of texts of, and they were all arrangements. Right, meet you for a pint. Yeah, we're going out in the lash. Blah 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 blah. Because all the restrictions have lifted. Which is great news for all of us, but it's also good news for the economy.
0: It's great news for the economy. How is
1: uh, that going to play out now? Well, I've,
0: I've, I was imagining in my head what I would love to have been present at over the weekend. It's the Irish bouncers trade union meeting.
1: <laughs> right. Okay?
0: Think about the humble bouncer, right? Yeah. A, a creature I avoided like the plague as a young fellow. I actually feel bouncers have a, an aversion to red-haired people.
1: Or maybe it was just you. It was always like, you, it's just you. just your, your Sorry, big, you know, smug face. Yeah, you know,
0: it was people like, ladies, come on in. Yeah, yeah, lovely, yeah, yeah. 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 You, Reds, sir, the yeah. back of the queue, right? <laughs> and I was like, what's wrong with me? Anyway, but I was thinking about bouncers, right? Bouncers were probably, along with actors, the most affected creatures. Because there was nothing to bounce. <laughs> right? There was no pause. There was your there bleeding was, head. You know what I mean? Like, so I was contemplating the plight. These are the way I think. I was yeah. contemplating the plight of bouncers. And I would love to be at the Bouncer Confederation this weekend or next weekend when they're actually mapping out clubs, gigs, the whole thing. And maybe it's a new career for us. We could bulk up and just adopt that sort of bouncer look, which is, sorry, I don't know. You're on the monkey
1: suit and away you go. Away you
0: go. Anyway, the economy, the extraordinary thing about the economy, John, is where the economy is now. The Irish economy has confounded all expectations. I mean, we've been very very bullish in the economy throughout the podcast. Because I actually think there's something going on here. And I've thought it's that book I wrote Renaissance Nation a couple of years ago. It's all about there's something fascinating going on here that isn't going on in many other countries. Yeah. And that is this economic dynamism, which I believe is part of an entire social dynamism which is going on in this country, which is related to again, I come back to the idea, the huge energy that was released In this country, in the last generation or two, that was released by the evaporation of dogma, particularly religious and moral and social dogma. And that is something we cannot really underestimate. And again, if you look at the figure, so had you said we are going to have a pandemic, that pandemic is going to close down the economy, right? What you would have expected is the day the pandemic is over, the economy would be on its knees. You would have expected huge deficits and huge problems everywhere. But that's not the case. So what has happened is something extraordinary. So GDP-wise, right? Forget this figure, but just bring mm. it up. The economy grew by 14.5% last year, right? This economy. Now, yeah. that's kind of leprechaun economics. We take all that sort of stuff out. But even if you look at domestic demand, it's growing between 5 and 6% per year. So that's domestic spending, okay? That has got nothing to do with
1: furlough spending
0: it's just extraordinary and if you could contrast that with the uk contrast that with france or germany the country is growing five or six times quicker than anywhere else right that's the right. first thing okay second thing is look at f- direct foreign investment jobs alone in direct foreign investment have increased by sixteen and a half thousand last year when we were shut down right right bringing the total to way above three hundred thousand people employed in multinational corporations and as we pointed out last week, they're paying more tax here than anywhere else in the world. So all this Irish thing of, oh my God, what's going to happen, you know, life after 12 and a half percent, and actual fact we're gonna get more tax. Mm. Tax revenue has increased enormously across every metric. And tax revenue, if you want to understand domestic economics in any country, the most interesting indicator to look at is tax revenue, because tax revenue shows you real buoyancy. And on every metric, Irish tax revenue is up, not by one or two billion, but by multiples of billions. On income tax, income tax, phenomenally, up two or three billion this year. And continuing to rise, corporation tax, up four billion, and VAT up. So what you see is on every metric, the economy is growing extremely well. I mean, it's it's, it's amazing. Even exports to the UK
1: are
0: up 20%, despite Brexit. Imports from the UK are down 20%. Right. So we're actually profiting from Brexit. And they, despite all their carry on, are being torpedoed by it. And if you want to have a look at Brexit, the queues of trucks. I saw that. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. So there's a huge change. I mean, just to come back to the tax, Ireland raised 68 billion euros in tax last year. That is the highest ever. Highest ever. Right. If you think the whole subvention, tax subvention of the British government to Northern Ireland, which they go on about all the time, is ten billion, yeah, we raised seven times that in one year. Like it's so something extraordinary is going on here. And if you look across all the all the metrics, things are unemployment rate down at five point one percent. I mean, these
1: are And, and can we keep? Is this sustainable? Can we keep this going?
0: The the point is the snapshot is Ireland has done extraordinarily well during this pandemic. Obviously, certain pockets, the sort of stuff that I would do, like public speaking all that, yeah. that's been a disaster, yeah. right? Festivals, public speaking, conferences, all that sort Musicians, of stuff. Musicians. Musicians, artists, anybody who gets up on the stage, yeah. that's been a nightmare for us. But the rest of the economy, I mean, you can always, and they're always the big weaknesses to talk about, it. well, it's been very bad for me, so it must be bad for everybody else. Mm. But in fact, the opposite the case for lots of other people. And then you think, okay, is this sustainable? Well, sustainable means, is it going to be all inflated away? And this is an interesting thing. So inflation is rising,
1: right? Yes.
0: And inflation expectations are rising. I told you about the, the builder, I was hoping to do some building, and he he said, you know, in the light of present inflationary uh, Yeah. Issues And he was using the language of the IMF. Did he
1: whip out a chart?
0: He didn't whip out a chart, but he might. But the point is, so inflation is in the system now. Yeah. And it may get worse because we don't really have any domestic tools to bring inflation down. So we don't have any interest rates. Yes. We don't have any exchange rate. They're normally the ones that bear down on inflation. We don't have a wages policy because that's very, very 1970s. So in a way, the only way in which Irish inflation can be brought under control, if that's what you want to do, is by expanding supply. And expanding supply basically means more people, more workers, okay? Because the biggest cost here are yeah, wages. Yeah. Now, more workers means more houses. And that's where the bottleneck is. Because you cannot advertise for more workers internationally to come in in order to if fill the jobs to, that, that the demand live, yeah. they have nowhere to live. Yeah. So, of course, the big, big deficiency in the Irish economic
1: story is housing. So, so are you saying that Fix housing, and you fix a multitude. of- Fix
0: housing, you fix the whole thing. Fix if you fix housing in this country, you fix everything. Right. Everything, and fixing housing demands fixing land. Fixing housing demands looking at areas where the interest of landowners and property owners are given primacy over buyers and wage earners. Yeah. So John you remember last year we had Kieran Mulqueen on the show he of the Instagram page crazy house yes prices. we have him back on the show let's talk to Kieran how are you doing are Kieran what's the crack oh, great david thanks tell me about house prices what we're seeing is more double digit house price forecast what are you seeing
2: yeah this that's the latest CSO stats for up to November they're up 14% yet again nationally that means they're up 112 since 2013, which is insane. And I think often when they're when they're looking at house prices, they tend to relate it back to prices in 2007 and 2008, which I always find insane because you're 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 using the most ridiculous benchmark because that's not where they should have been. So maybe 2013, 2014 is a better
0: yeah. What we call benchmark. that just statistics is base effects, on Base yeah. effects. You know that basically, you know anything. Depending on what base you use, anything can look either good, bad, or indifference. There's a great, a great book called How to Lie with Statistics, and that's one of, the first, uh, one of the first lessons. But tell me from your page, Crazy House Prices, what are the more bizarre, what are the weird stories, what are people of your generation facing?
2: Last time I was on was back in March on the show and the Instagram page is crazy. So the followers have doubled since, since last March, but the story still remain very much the same. It's a story of incredibly difficult trying to even find a home to even put an offer on now, let alone go and view or, or view multiple houses and put offers on a few. So back then we were, we were still in the pandemic last March and not even actually being able to view a house, but still having to put an offer on it. And and you suggested that the buyer strike, which we were all set to do, but it all changed in the end. But the the stories are, are the same. There's just a lot more of them now, I suppose.
0: And and tell me, so amongst your friends and amongst your peers, because you, you yourself and your missus are both teachers, are you?
2: Yeah, we're both teachers, yeah.
0: In, in the centre of town? Yeah. And you were t- telling me last March that the chances of you getting a place anywhere close to where you work were kind of zero, and yet you managed to find something. Tell me that story.
2: Yeah, it's a good one. Um, we basically after chatting to you, we've well, been looking for a couple of years and just decided this is this is insane. We need to just take a step out. There's no value in the market anymore. We were bidding on a few different houses, mostly in around Dublin eight, just to be close to family, close to work. And there was just nothing, nothing happening. We just kept getting outbid, and I was just refuse to to bid more than what I thought a property was worth I tend to do my research on those things and
0: actually can I ask you Kieran, how do you because it will be very instructive I think for people listening how do you subjectively I say subjectively decide what a property is worth how do you do what, what sort of research do you do
2: so I actually I actually did a post on this on my Instagram I, I do loads of like helpful infographics on my Instagram runs through the whole process from even thinking about buying a house to moving in. The property price register is is the main kind of website that you'll go to to figure out, okay, what's sold for what on the road. And then if you get the address, so let's say, you know, number 50 sold for 612,000 on this date, you can Google that address. And sometimes it will bring up old photos from when it was listed. So that will give you an idea as the condition of the house when it was sold. Even if the ad's taken down, sometimes you can get it on a cache. There's a website called Speaking Same, I think, usually comes up with with old photos. And that would be my usual thing because if it's on that road or if you just go to Google Maps and see what roads are around it and search for all of those. And you get a a really good idea as to what the houses are worth around there and what condition they were in. And then just going by square meters, going by how, how much work is needed then. And estimating that with, uh, again, I have an infographic on that with kind of rough ideas as to how much renovation costs are if, if it's a fixer-upper, which most houses are because there's no new houses. So like the house we bought is 100 years old. So that would give you a really good indication as to, right, it's worth X amount. You got to take away 90,000 for the renovation. This is, this is how much I'm willing to spend on it.
0: Okay, so let's say, let's work backwards. When people talk about Ireland, they say, can teachers, nurses, guards live in this area. So we're right smack in the middle. Okay. So give, give me the process in, in your head, because some people will say, okay, well, we'll do it three times combined income and we'll see where that leads us. That's the amount of money we can get. Mm. Plus, if we've saved a deposit, we might add that on top of it. Plus, as happens a lot now, if we're going to get something from our parents or somewhere else to try and uh, make up the difference. That's one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is to actually take the property and work backwards. So give, give, give me that sense. Give, give me a concrete example.
2: Yes, that's kind of what we did. We multiplied, let's say, for example, if we were on 30,000 each yeah, and that's 60,000 multiplied it and usually it'd be three and a half. We went to a four and a half because I had a, a good idea we'd be able to get the exception. So you're looking at what's that, yeah. 270,000, just to make it simple. And then you give you your savings on top. So then you go and you search search for the houses within that price bracket and then you take away money if it needs a renovation and that a lot maybe some of that will be coming off your deposit maybe some of that will be coming through a loan like and uh, you 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 touched on it there with people getting help from parents or 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 sometimes grandparents and I think that is kind of going to the crux of the issue here that in Dublin anyway and in Ireland it's taking Two, if not three, generations of money yeah. to just buy a very, very bog standard house, usually like in our case, an ex-council house. And that's just insane. Now we like we we just had our savings and we managed to get an exception, but I do hear it on the page oh, so often. There's, there's
0: there's no doubt. I mean, and it's a very interesting thing. I remember many, many, many years ago being asked when I was working in the finance game to study Japan in the late 1980s because they had a huge property boom, spectacular bust. They had all sorts of things going on, and I thought it was quite an interesting example, not just for Ireland, but for the rest of the world. And I remember at the time reading about the what they call the intergenerational mortgage in Japan, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, so much so that rather than do the Irish thing, which is you get money from your parents if you're lucky, or even, as you said, grandparents, what they did was they actually took the three generations' income And they use that. Now, it all ended in tears in Japan, but it struck me at the time as being, wow, that's really mad. And yet what you're saying is here we are.
2: Yes. I just think that's that's mad. Like it shouldn't take like, as you said, teachers, nurses, guards, whoever, any like people on on a fairly median income if they can't afford to live near where they have to go to work, we can't work from home. They have, we have to go and be on site. And if yeah. we can't be there, the place doesn't function. So it shouldn't be that difficult for those professions to, to, to buy but, a home. But, you but we know, managed to do it. And okay. You managed probably, to do it. Go on, tell us, yeah. tell us. Okay. Go. So I went to have a little tangent there. So yeah, we've given up hope, And, and uh, I just said to Melissa, look, maybe we could try this. And it's been, it was something I'd been thinking of for, for about a year. And, just a bit of problem solving. What was the problem? The problem was we couldn't beat any of the bids on the houses. We kept getting yeah. out bids. There were, there were too many people trying to buy each and every house. So how do you solve that problem? You cut out the middleman and you cut out all the other bidders and you go direct to the person. And obviously it's not going to work for everyone, but it worked for us. So we got Melissa to write up a letter. and um, She's better with words than I am. And basically she just explained our situation Explain to me where, where we live, where we want to live and why we want to live there. And we've been basically trying to buy a house around the tenters because it's as close as we could get to Mel's parents in Portobello and my mom over in, on Griffith Avenue and my work as well, which means we could just keep the one car. We don't need two cars. I can walk to work or cycle to work. So we've been bidding on houses around there, just kept getting out bid and just decided to try this letter. And we printed about 12, 12 or 13, I think, put them around the houses that we liked and we got we got one reply the next day, and went around. I think that was a. So you put
0: the letters through the letterbox. and said, "Look, we are yeah. looking for a house around here," and somebody yeah. said, "That's interesting because I want to sell." Yeah, exactly. And yeah. was it, it an
2: elderly person? Was it a so an elderly lady had died, and um, her sons were selling the house, and just a lovely, lovely family. They had been in it since day one. It just meant we cut out the estate agent basically. So we, and you're right we, beside
0: Fallon's, which is a very good boozer. Right
2: beside Fallons. Yeah, it's a grape. There's actually there's a, yeah, some great boozers around there. So yeah, that we basically just well done stuck the, stuck the letters in and we bought we bought directly off them. It meant there was no estate agent. And in the letter, like it wasn't as if we were trying to get the house for less than it was worth. We we didn't put a number in the letter or anything, just said we can offer you a full market value sale without the stress of you know having to get the house ready for viewings, without having to pay an yep. estate agent one yep. and a half, two percent of the fee. It worked out really well because we actually got to buy from the people and we got to hear their stories. I got to hear the, them talk about growing up in the area, who who lived around the corner, who used to live over there. You know yourself, old yep. dubs are, are really just great storytellers. Yeah, yeah. It was it was gorgeous to be honest. It was such a nice process and. I think the main thing was they were really happy that the the house was going to somebody who loved it it wasn't going to somebody who was just going to rent it out it yeah. wasn't going to somebody who was looking to maybe do it up and flip it or whatever, like he knew it was going to be a family home. And and I think that's what kind of worked for us and worked in our favor. And since we did it, I've kind of posted about it a good bit on my page and I've done a whole post on exactly what we wrote in the letter, what what we did, how what the whole process of it and Lots of people have have done it since and I've heard so many good stories of it actually working for them. And then another one of the tips I always give people is if, let's say, you are going down the more traditional route and it is with an estate agent, not all estate agents are the enemy. You know, Some of them will want to do their best for you as well as the seller. And I always give people the tip of just writing not not so much a love letter, but even just four or five lines as to who you are, why you love the house, why you want to live there and ask the estate agent to forward it on with your offer. And you wouldn't believe the amount of messages I've gotten from people saying that it worked. And the seller chose them over somebody who would bid five or 10 grand more because they wanted the house to go to them because of the little note they wrote and and it, and it kind of touched with them. So,
0: you know, you managed to circumvent, you got lucky to be many thousands of people listening yeah. who, who aren't lucky, who are stuck. We spoke last year, Prices are now 10%, 15% higher. And this is the dilemma with the buyer strike, because this is the what 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 makes housing weird. Because I've always said this, and I said this after the last crash, that most people got into negative equity in Ireland not because of greed, but because of love. And what I mean is that it's a certain stage in your life where you like like I said, you said, you've a kid on the way, you're just together, you're with, you're either married, you're living with the person you want to be with, you're in that part of your life where your financial decisions are not made in a spreadsheet. They're not made on basic logic. They're not made on looking back at Japan in 2000 and this or la la la. They're made on, I need a place to live at this stage in my life. Okay. Yeah. And that's the difficulty. So you're constantly being dragged by your heart rather than your head. And there are hundreds of thousands of Irish people at that stage in their lives. Right. Because again, the way the demographics rolled in the late 70s through to the late 80s. We were having lots and lots of babies. And that's the generations that's emerged in your generation that now needs places to live. So if the state could do two or three things, what would they be? For your job? what I know in my own sense as an economist, but what's coming up from the ground of people on your page yearning something to happen?
2: There is a huge appetite for tackling derelict and vacant properties. I think that is the the low hanging fruit that everybody seems to be talking about. And I know there was a little study or a survey done the other day saying there was 90,000 vacant homes. I think that's quite conservative. If you look at the actual, like the, the best survey done on it was from the CSO back in 2016. It's a lot more accurate and that. That had 316,000 empty homes, of which 183,000 were vacant over the course of three months. And the latest one that says 90,000 doesn't take into account apartments in buildings with five apartments or less. So it didn't count those. So there's a few issues with it. But even if you were going down the conservative route of it being 90,000 vacant homes, I think when they walk past these homes, like I, there's yeah. about 15 around me in Portobello, one of the most uh, one desired of the most big, locations yeah, in the city. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. So in demand, and there's empty and derelict ones. Everywhere, on every single road, you'll find an empty house around Portobello, pretty much. And people just get really angry walking past those, seeing them, I think, because it's such a waste and it's there's no need for it, really. And they are the most sustainable house to build is the one that's already built. Yeah,
0: no, and I think we will leave it there because, I mean, that, that's something that we we uh, talked about a long time ago in the podcast, a good few years ago. We've had uh, Frank O'Connor from Cork, who's doing great work on Twitter on it, and we'll leave it there. But it's that idea is the most sustainable house is the house that is already built. And staring straight in front of our nose is a solution to this crisis that doesn't demand worrying about new buildings, builder's fees, et cetera. You can actually take these, you can do them up obviously, but the point is they're there and they exist. Yeah. Gerard, listen, great to talk to you. Congratulations. Thanks, and we'll talk to you again. Cheers, all the best.
1: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com Do you know what's interesting Kiran mentioned there about writing letters and going direct? We did that in London when we were looking for a house. Did and you? it worked. Yeah, it worked really well.
0: And you said Lovely
1: couple. <laughs> no, but I remember printing up things and going around really, one afternoon. Where was that? I was in Putney. Putney? Yeah. And, I was uh, funny,
0: I was thinking of you. I was thinking of you the other day because I was reading something about the Tories.
1: Oh yeah. On the Tories. No, yeah. but
0: they'd said and I knew you lived in Putney and some some sort of grandee said, Well, we've lost the Putney Tories. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking that's job. It's gonna be me. That's job. But just so the very just before we go, two things, right? One, it's very clear dereliction. Unsightly, it's vandalism. Yeah. It's also a massive waste. And what you do is you encourage people to sell. So you don't have compulsory, you know the compulsory purchase orders you hear? Yeah. Use compulsory sale orders. Not that the state has to buy, but the seller has to sell. Yeah. And you just give them time to sell. Just the other thing on inflation before we go is we're talking about the economy. What's it going to look like after? Mm. I think the inflation story is going to get worse, not better in the short term. I think what's happening is because even if you go out now over the next few nights, right, what you'll find is the price of everything's gone up because restaurants, bars, clubs have had to hire people very, very quickly for this extra capacity, right? Yeah. And people are thinking, well, I'm not going to get out of bed for this. I'm going to wait a while. So just watch the inflation story. We're going to come back to it. Watch it. I still think over time it's going to be transitory, but it's going to spike right up over the next couple of months. Just a quick message. Listen, thank you so much to all our Patreons. We couldn't do this without your support. And if you fancy supporting us, I'm getting all sorts of fantastic gear, economic courses, tutorials, reading lists, all that jazz. Follow us on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash david McWilliams. imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine
2: them getting even softer over time